Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one familial page of Talmud each day. And today's page, Gitin 51, is here to teach us an interesting lesson in family life, or more precisely, an interesting lesson about the debt that we owe our ancestors. Have a listen. The Gemara answers, To which kind of minor was Rav referring? It was to an adult son of the creditor. And why does Rav call him a minor if he is in fact an adult? It is as with regard to his father's affairs. He is like a minor. He does not know with certainty how much money the borrower repaid, but merely says that he thinks he owes his father more. So this is simple. It's a halachic principle that a minor does not have competence to partake in most legal affairs, which is obvious. But the rabbis ask why the great Rav is still calling a certain person a minor when that person is clearly an adult. Because, they explain, it doesn't matter. We could be adults legally and still, when it comes to the affairs of our fathers and our mothers, stand overwhelmed when faced with the work of those who came before us. This applies to families, to children who look at their parents' life's work and find themselves in awe of all that their ancestors had accomplished. But it also applies to communities collectively. And recently, I had the opportunity to feel this very feeling, the feeling of staring at the work of the Jews who came before me and be so moved beyond belief by their tenacity, by their dedication, by their accomplishment. Talk about not knowing with certainty how a previous generation did something. I had no idea that it was rugged and smart and passionate Jews who traveled out west during the gold rush and helped build one of America's most iconic towns. I recorded a segment about the town and its Jewish founders for our sister podcast, Unorthodox, for a segment we call Across the USA. And today's page of Talmud brought it to mind. Have a listen then, and here's hoping that, like me, you leave feeling even more grateful to and moved by the achievements of generations past. Wilmington, Delaware, gonna find a jelly there Looking for a dreidel in the cradle of the heartland Lots to see in Lakewood, Jersey But is the man a chef down in Louisville, Kentucky? North, South Carolina Looking for locks in a country diner I can say we're on our way All across the USA When we launched this series, Across the USA, the idea was simple. Go and visit communities all over America to see what Jewish life looks like outside of New York or Los Angeles or Chicago or anywhere else you'd expect to find Jews. So we went to Seattle and Louisville and New Orleans. But in some places, the Jewish story is told best through historical records and artifacts from long ago. We wanted to take a look at the legacy one group of prospecting Jews left in the most unexpected of places. Where? Why? Here. Well, I'm in pain, but no, I'm obviously not dead. But obviously you didn't die when the dog slapped you. No. So including last night, that's three damage incidents that didn't kill you. Pain or damage don't end the world. Or despair or beatings. That, as you might have figured out just by counting those four-letter words, is a scene from the HBO Max show Deadwood, 
one of the best things ever to air on TV. You can still stream it if you missed it. It's a lightly fictionalized version of a town that looms large in the popular American imagination, Deadwood, South Dakota. The town's real history reads like something straight out of Hollywood. One day in 1874, Colonel George Armstrong Custer, two years before his death at Little Bighorn, leads an expedition to the Black Hills of South Dakota and announces the discovery of gold. So naturally, settlers flock to the region, hoping to get rich quick. They don't care much that the area is sacred to the Lakota people, who call it Owayasuta, or to approve things. The newcomers noticed a bunch of dead trees in the gulch and gave their town its new name, Deadwood. And truth be told, the name fit the town's new vibe like a glove. Eleanor Alphonsine Dumont, better known as Madame Mustache, soon sauntered into town and set up a successful brothel. Dora Dufran soon did the same, as did the impeccably named Dirty M. And before too long, Deadwood had a thriving prostitution scene serving a population that soon mushroomed to 5,000 and then 12,000 and then more. The law didn't much care about such vice, or for that matter about anything else really, murder included, which is why Deadwood soon became home to such legendary Wild West figures like Wild Bill Hickok and Calamity Jane. But Deadwood needed supplies, and Deadwood presented opportunities, and Deadwood didn't much care about pedigree, which is why pretty soon. Deadwood welcomed the Jews. The Jewish population was just one of many minorities that came out to the Black Hills in this area. Uh, we had Chinese, English from uh, Cornwall, England, Scandinavians. Um, they all kind of came out here and this area became basically a large melting pot with the idea first to make money, but then second of all, to actually settle and raise their families out here as well. And so that Jewish population that you were talking about, there were quite a few people that set up along Main Street that were merchants. We'll meet these merchants soon, I promise. But first, we have to meet the man speaking. He's Mike Rungi. He's not Jewish, but he has one of the most interesting jobs in the world. He is the city archivist of Deadwood. So, sure, the city is very different now than it was in its heyday. It's more Holiday Inn than Doc Holiday, and Main Street is lined up with casinos and t-shirt shops and other tourist attractions. But down at the basement of City Hall, Rungi keeps Deadwood's past alive, including its storied Jewish past. And recently, he made a discovery right like no other, digging about four feet under Main Street a few years back and, and finding But we also this. have in here the scraps of newspaper that we found in 2019 that were from the Deadwood Four Points Archaeology. What's really kind of neat about this is, is these items are carbonized paper uh, it was involved in a fire. We're still trying to figure out the dates. But as I pull this back and you start looking at these, one of the things you're going to notice is, is that if you look close enough, the ink from the newsprint is actually on here. The reason this is so important, especially for the Jewish population, is this is the first artifacts or the first artifacts we found in an archaeological context of the Jewish population that once lived here in Deadwood. In a small box lay 45 small fragments each no larger than a quarter, blackened by fire. But when I looked closely, I could make out Hebrew letters. 
one fragment clearly read Lashana Haba'a, as in Lashana Haba'a Yerushalayim, the concluding sentence of the Passover Haggadah. So could it be that I was looking at fragments from a Haggadah that the Jews of Deadwood, sometime in 1876 or 1877 or 1878, read as they ate their matzah and drank their four cups down the block from Wild Bill Hickok? I was getting excited. I am not going to lie. And so was Rungi. This, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about this because paper in an archaeological context doesn't exist. The fact that this stuff was carbonized and we have fragments of this. I mean, this is directly tied to the Jewish population that we can do that. That is just unbelievable. It's unheard of. It doesn't happen on a daily basis. So it's, it's been a really fun project. So now I was giddy and I wanted to meet these badass Jews, these men and women who left behind comfortable lives out east and came here to this gorgeous strip of God's land to find their luck and build a new community. So I enticed Rungi to hop in my car and take a ride up to the local okay. cemetery. All right, so first and foremost, welcome to Mount Moriah Cemetery. Um, they, this was established in 1878 by Lawrence County. There are approximately 3,600 people buried in here. One of the things that's kind of interesting and where we're standing at right now is the gateway going into the cemetery. Uh, this was created in 2003 in the likeness of the original 1890 wrought iron cemetery gateway that was there. When you look at it, we have three symbols that are on the gateway, three circles that are interlinking, which stands for the Independent Order of Oddfellows. It was a fraternal group that was here in Deadwood that established in 1877. In the center is uh, the square and compass, which is for the Deadwood Masons. And finally, on the far right, if you notice, is the Star of David. And the Star of David is for the Jewish population that was out here that established Mount Zion, and that's where we're going to be headed to as well. Mount Zion is the Jewish section of Mount Moriah Cemetery. The first thing you realize when walking through the wrought iron gates of Mount Moriah with that giant Star of David is that this isn't an ordinary cemetery. For one thing, it's impossibly gorgeous with dramatic views of the Black Hills covered by pine trees and black-eyed Susans, a yellow wildflower that adds a touch of beauty to this already stunning landscape. For another, it's a tourist attraction drawing upwards of 100,000 visitors every year. But strangest of all, maybe, are the names of the small streets that divide the cemetery into sections. Jacob, Boaz, David, Jerusalem. It feels like a deeply Jewish place. But before you can get up the hill to Mount Zion, the section where all the prominent Jews who helped build this town are buried, you have to visit some other folks first. So as we walk up to the celebrity graves, you know, we go past a bunch of names and different individuals. James Layton Gilmore uh, murdered a gentleman along the Fort Pier to Deadwood Trail and was uh, convicted and executed here in Deadwood on December 15th, 1882. And then if you take a, oh, about 10, 12 steps further, uh, you run into the grave of Dora DeFran. She was a madam that operated four bordellos in Lead Deadwood, uh, Belfouche, and down in Rapid City as well. Um, she also, believe it or not, hired Martha Canary to clean one of the houses down there as well. Martha Canary, for those of you who aren't Wild West obsessives like yours truly, is better known as Calamity Jane the famous sharpshooter and legendary Wild West figure. Her last wish was to be buried by her good pal Wild Bill, who was shot in the back of the head at a poker game in August of 1876. And here they both are, 
in graves right near each other. These two larger-than-life figures still large in death. But if you would like to meet the Jews of Deadwood, you have to continue and, I'm and climb my up the hill. <laughs> Jews got the top of the hill, huh? They got the top of the hill, yep. And I think it was in 1890 um, is when, when the Jewish community came together and purchased this area up in Section 4 to create it for uh, Mount Zion. The interesting thing, too, is you're going to notice, and I think this is a Jewish tradition about putting rocks on headstones. Uh, you'll see that throughout the cemetery, but it's kind of neat that, you know, that's carried over, not just here, but throughout the entire cemetery as well. That indeed is the case. Little rocks lay on almost every tombstone. But when we finally reach the top of the hill, we notice something else that's different. All of a sudden, all of the tombstones are in Hebrew. And every tombstone tells a story about an amazing Jewish individual or family who helped build this small outlaw town into an oversized entry in the collective American imagination. Uh, the Coleman family was really significant. They were early uh, Jewish merchants. Their daughter, Blanche Coleman, went on to become the first uh, South Dakota congressional delegate. For Yeah, and she's buried up here, so we'll see that as well. Uh, the so road, first South Dakota congressional delegate was a Jewish woman? Yes. That's amazing. Yes. The Colemans didn't just produce South Dakota's first congressional delegate, who by some accounts was also South Dakota's first Jewish baby. Blanche's father, Judge Nathan Cohen, was the town's lay rabbi. He was beloved by his congregation and by his non-Jewish neighbors alike. The local newspaper, paying him the ultimate compliment, endorsed him by writing, He is no slouch. He is a Western man. The Colemans also built the town's first synagogue in the basement of their spacious home. Spacious, I say, but not quite as swanky as the home of their neighbor in life as well as in death. Harris Franklin. Harris Franklin was born Finkelstein in Russia and arrived in Deadwood in 1876, penniless. He went into wholesale liquor sales, which, as you also heard in our Louisville episode, was one way Jews made their living as they moved out west. And business was booming. So pretty soon, the newly minted Mr. Franklin expanded into banking as well and then into the hotel business. The home he and his wife built for themselves, a beautiful, dark red brick Queen Anne-style mansion, is still around, not too far from the cemetery. It was so luxurious that when it was completed in 1893, it got its own write-up in the local newspaper, with a reporter writing breathlessly that the resident equals, and I quote, in point of beauty, anything of its kind west of Omaha. The home was centrally heated had hot and cold running water, a telephone, and electric bells allowing its owners to summon their servants whenever they needed anything. None of these things were commonplace in Deadwood, or for that matter in many other corners of America at the time. The Franklin Hotel was equally fancy. Half of its 80 rooms had private baths, a major luxury at the time. And it boasted a lobby fountain, a cigar store, a barber shop, two private parlors for the ladies, a masseuse, and an elevator. The hotel, too, still stands, reminding the millions of tourists who flock to Deadwood every year looking for that old-timey Wild West vibe that this here town was built by Jews.
And while Franklin and others got creative with the monuments they erected while alive, other members of the community left their marks with beautiful and beautifully Jewish headstones. Here, or into the Jewish section, you're going to notice a few more interesting monuments that are up here. Uh, Jacobs, Blumenthal, Margolin. Um, and then we have the Cranson plot. Uh, this one was kind of interesting. Uh, the monument itself is kind of like, uh, it looks like the Mosaic Dialogue or Ten Commandments, the way the monument's shaped. Um, this is the first one that we have of seven that had Hebrew text on it. And so what's interesting is, is that this Isaac Cranson, we did a little bit of research on him and come to find out that he was in the Crow insurrection uh, in Montana. And he was actually a uh, Indian Wars veteran and then eventually uh, was mustered out in Sturgis over at Fort Meade, came up and he was a tailor that operated up in Leeds, South Dakota. Walking around these hills, seeing these graves, and reading the Hebrew inscriptions is nothing short of amazing. The Hebrew reads, Ponitman, here is buried. Rabbi Tzchak Yosef Barididia Kranson. Niftar, passed away. May his soul be bundled among the souls of the living. Cool. <laughs> That's so neat. You don't need to know any Hebrew to appreciate what you're looking at. Jewish history is everywhere in Deadwood. Heck, even the longtime mayor back then, Solomon Starr, better known as Sol, was Jewish. A Bavarian-born immigrant, he came here in 1876 and opened up an auction and hardware business on the corner of Wall and Main Streets. He and his business partner, the famous and Gentile Seth Bullock, who would eventually become the town's fearsome sheriff, branched out as well, building another one of the town's famous and still-standing hotels, the Bullock. If these names sound familiar to you, Star and Bullock are two of the main characters in HBO's Deadwood. Here they are, engaged in negotiations, two absolute legends. Mr. Swearingen? Yeah, that's right. Saul Star? Seth Bullock. Rent on lot four. Lot four? The hardware boys, huh? Well, I heard you're not a man. I want mistaken my intention. Who says that? I'd like to ask him what they mean. A fella drew on Seth this morning. Never heard him. No one mistook his intentions. Let's leave it all alone. I am stupidest when I try to be funny. The Jewish stories in Deadwood go on and on and on. You could see the legacy of the Jews of Deadwood everywhere you go. There's Felix Poznanski, who ran a dry goods store on Main Street, but was also the region's only moyle, traveling across the Black Hills to perform his mitzvah. Or Jacob Goldberg, who arrived in 1876 alongside Sol Stern, made his fortune as a merchant, and gave back to the community by building the town its library. Or David Holtzman, who set up shop on Main Street, met Rebecca Rubens, and on April 10, 1879, gave the town its first Jewish wedding. The interesting ceremony, reported the local newspaper, took place at the residence of the bride's parents in Ingleside in the presence of at least 60 ladies and gentlemen of our best Hebrew society and of all other nationalities. Today, alas, there are less than 500 Jews living in South Dakota, making the state the nation's smallest Jewish community. There's a Chabad rabbi in Sioux Falls, and a smattering of Jewish events in Rapid City, which also houses the Torah the Jews of Deadwood used to read from when they prayed, first at Nathan Coleman's basement and later at the local Masonic temple, their makeshift shul. But the Jews of Deadwood past are everywhere you look, telling us a very different story than the one we thought we knew about Jews in America. 
here, there are tough and bold and daring men and women, not afraid to brave the elements and throw down with some of the most hardened scoundrels in American history. Here, there's very little of the bigotry that kept Jews back east out of country clubs, elected offices, and other corners of polite society for too long. Here, there was Jewish pride and ingenuity and great faith and the endless promise of this great nation of ours, the United States of America. But hang on a second. As I visited Deadwood, a thought kept gnawing at the back of my mind. Sure, I loved and admired these fierce Jewish cowboys. But I was born in Israel, the indigenous homeland of the Jewish people. And as a Zionist, I celebrate the miracle of returning home to our ancestral lands. And it made me think about America's indigenous people. The Sioux and the Dakota and the Lakota and the Oglala and all the other nations that called these parts home long before the new arrivals came along to find their fame and fortune. So I felt like there was just one more thing I had to do before I left South Dakota. I drove down to the Pine Ridge Reservation, about an hour away, to go pay my respects to one of America's most sacred spots. There is no official landmark here, no plaque, no visitor center. Just a weathered, wooden, handwritten sign that tells you the story of what happened here at Wounded Knee. On December 28, 1890, the Seventh Cavalry, commanded by Colonel James W. Forsyth, arrived here with the intention of disarming the Native Americans. Chief Bigfoot cooperated with the armed men, giving up many weapons as a peace offering. But Forsyth wasn't satisfied. He wanted all of the weapons, and he wanted them now. This caused the Native Americans great strife. And on the following day, December 29, a deaf man named Black Coyote was scared and refused to disarm. A struggle ensued, and his gun accidentally went off. This was all the sign the 7th Cavalry needed. They opened fire on the now defenseless Native Americans, killing, by most estimates, anywhere between 150 and 300 men, women, and children. Twenty of the soldiers who led the massacre were awarded the Medal of Honor, the highest commendation the United States Army has to give. Congress has since passed a resolution expressing deep regret for what happened at Wounded Knee in 1990. I felt that in telling a story of Jews and of how the West was won, I owed the Native Americans a little bit more. I owed them, at the very least, a prayer. I didn't record my time saying the Shema by the gravesites of the dead at Wounded Knee. To do so would have been disrespectful. Nor did I record my conversation with a young man who stood right outside the memorial telling us about the reservation, Pine Ridge, one of the poorest places in America, and about how the water pipe had just burst some time ago, and now there was no running water in their homes. But I drove back east that day, feeling as if I've told my children, who joined me on this journey, a more complete story of what America is all about. A story about American ideals that are also deeply Jewish ideals. A story of tragedy and opportunity, of violence and transcendence, and of people understanding, 
as the Jews following Moses in the desert once understood that there was nothing inherently promised about our promised lands. What makes nations great is the work people put in to make them better, not only more prosperous, but also more just. A very Jewish story, everywhere alive and well in South Dakota. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, then you're going to enjoy our brand new Take One newsletter even more. Each week, you'll get an extra shot of Talmudic wisdom straight to your inbox. And for those who sign up before Tractate Gittin ends, we'll be raffling off some Take One swag. So make sure to subscribe at tabletm.ag slash Take One Newsletter. As always, please go rate and review Take One on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And you could get your Take One t-shirts, mugs, and other amazing form of swag at tabletstudios.com. Each week, we will be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Daf Yomi. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruskay, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Courtney Hazlett, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You could find us on Twitter at takeone.dafyomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic.